This evening's passage comes from Psalm 132. Psalm 132, verses 3 through 5. Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, depending on how much sugar my kids have had in a given day, generally speaking, bedtime is a time of the day that I really enjoy. Now, nap time is a completely different story, uh, but bedtime is really the time in our house when things finally start to slow down. We have a chance to unwind a little bit, and really this is when we wind up getting to spend a lot of quality time together. So our evenings at home are a time that I look forward to all day long. Since our kids are so young, that's generally not the time of day that we reserve for any kind of deep theological discussions until last weekend. So last weekend, I'm putting Kendall to bed, and we had just finished saying our prayers, and I got up to leave the room half asleep, as I do every night, and she said, hey, Daddy, and usually what comes next is, I'm hungry, or I'm thirsty, or can I have some gummy bears, or something along those lines. But tonight, or that night, the question was a lot different. She said, Daddy, when are we going to go see God? She said, when can we go to God's house? And so I'm half asleep and ready to go to bed myself and was not really equipped, or wasn't in the presence of mind, I guess, to answer that kind of question, especially to try to make it make sense to a three-year-old. And my response in the moment was something like, well... Kendall, the Bible tells us that at some point we all get to go see God together. And one day, me, you, Mommy, Charlie, all of us will all get to see God at the same time. And really, after I walked out of the room that night, I kept thinking about it, and honestly, haven't really stopped thinking about it since then. And it served as the catalyst for this lesson tonight. You see, I, I think it doesn't really matter how old we are or what stage of life we're in, that idea of being with God, in the fullness of his presence, beholding the full glory of God. And certainly we know that God is always with us. We know that his presence is here with us even now. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I shall not fear. What can man do to me? So we know that in a general sense, certainly God is with us all day, every day. But that hope of being with God in the fullness of his glory and being with God in his presence in a more full kind of way, I think it fills us all with great hope. It fills us all with great excitement. And I think no matter how old we are, it genuinely sparks our curiosity to think about what exactly, what will that experience feel like to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. And as we think about that great hope, it's not as if God has left us without his presence here on earth in the here and now. It's not as if while we await that great hope of Christianity that we are left without God's presence in our lives anyway. Certainly the presence of God lives with us and within us in our daily lives. And it is upon that topic that I want us to direct our attention for the next few moments tonight. Now, the study of God's presence among his people here on earth throughout scripture is a fascinating study. And certainly we don't have time to get all the way through that 
tonight, but we can zoom in on one aspect of God's presence here on earth with us as we start to answer this question of when can we see God? In what ways can we see God even now? Now, throughout Scripture, when you see Adam and Eve, certainly God is with Adam and Eve in a very immediate way, right? The presence of God walks with Adam and Eve through the garden. He is speaking with Adam and Eve in a way that seems to be face-to-face. But after the fall, mankind has not enjoyed that kind of presence of God in that way since Adam and Eve made that mistake back in the garden. But it's not as if, again, God left his people completely without his presence. After the fall, God has been with his people. He has watched over his people. He has spoken directly to his people through some of his servants throughout Scripture. We see the presence of God living with his people. In fact, we see the presence of God in some shocking ways throughout the Old Testament. We see the presence of God come to Moses in the form of a burning bush. There's a bush that before the presence of God comes to that place, it's just a normal place. You could walk there, you could look at the bush, you could walk past it, and nothing would be out of the ordinary. But for some reason, when Moses is there, and when God speaks to him, you might remember what God says to him. Take off your shoes, for the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. It's just a regular bush until the presence of God comes to dwell in the bush. And now, it is something entirely different. It might look the same on the outside in a lot of ways, but it's become a holy place, a sanctified place, a place that is set apart now for a different purpose of not just serving that purpose of being what it is in nature. Now it is housing the Spirit of God or the presence of God. We see that happen with the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is kept heavily guarded. There are a lot of rules and regulations regarding the Ark of the Covenant. And you might remember one of the servants is killed for even touching the Ark. Even though he's trying to stop it from falling down, he is still struck down for breaking those laws of holiness because the presence of God supposedly dwells in the Ark. The same thing then happens with the temple when the Ark is brought into the temple in 1 Kings 18, which we'll look at in just a moment. But it comes in Jesus in a very new type of way. In Jesus, and as you remember, the angel says that his name shall be called what? It shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, God was certainly with them before Jesus was born in a lot of different ways, but in Jesus, God was with us in a very different way. God was with us in a way like he had never been before and in a way that he has not been since. He has been with us in a very physical manifestation that we could see and hear and touch. He was here living among us. As John 1 tells us, the Word became flesh and lived among us. And when His work was done, He ascended back to the Father. And again, the presence of God did not leave the earth with Jesus. He left His presence here among us in some ways that I think are very exciting but also extremely challenging for us as Christians. And so what we want to do, we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians tonight. If you want to go ahead and turn over to chapter 3, we're going to start there, and then we're going to go to chapter 6 as well. Paul is going to make a very, I think, surprising metaphor or a very surprising illustration that carries a lot of weight about where the presence of God dwells. We're talking tonight about a dwelling place For God. And we read the passage a moment ago about David 
not being willing to enter his house or to give his eyelids sleep or to close his eyes until he could find a dwelling place for God, for the mighty one of Jacob. Well, when Paul talks about the place where the Spirit of God dwells, I think we find some things that are very interesting and very challenging. In chapter 3, Paul is arguing against the divisions that are in the Corinthian church. Now, the point of his argument here is not necessarily to talk about where exactly it is that God dwells. That's an assumption that he's going to make that we cannot overlook. But in the discussion here, he's wrapping up his conclusions on why the church in Corinth does not need to be divided. They've been divided for a lot of reasons, but as he gets here to the end of his argument, he is going to prove his point about why they need to stay united in a very strong way. You can see what he says starting in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And we probably need to pause here to say when he says you, he means you in the plural. He's saying you, the Christians at Corinth, the church at Corinth, don't you guys know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. See, the point that Paul is trying to make to the Corinthians here, that dividing the church in the way that they were was tantamount to destroying the temple, because that is precisely the place where God's Spirit is indeed dwelling. And again, although the point here is to show the seriousness of division in the church, we must not and we cannot overlook the fact that Paul assumes that God dwells among us, that God lives among us as the corporate representation of the body of Christ on earth. And you'll notice that Paul says here that God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Certainly, we can recall all of the examples, and we'll look at just a few tonight in a moment, of how the holiness of God was protected and how the holiness of God was even communicated through the ark and through the temple. And we see the careful steps that the Jewish people took to ensure that the place in which God dwelled stayed holy. They ensured that it was revered. They ensured that it was kept in its holiness, that it was indeed set apart. A holy God demands a holy place in which to dwell. But Paul's going to come back to this in chapter 6, if you'll flip over there. And again, in chapter 6, Paul is arguing for something else, and I think we will get a very important application on this towards the end of our time together tonight. But again, Paul's argument here, he's not necessarily arguing about where it is that God dwells. It's an assumption that he has already made, and it influences other areas of the life of a Christian. Here he is talking specifically about holy behavior. Rather, he's trying to restrict them from behavior that is unholy. Specifically, we're talking about intimate relationships that are unholy. And in this argument, when we get to verse 19, you're going to find he says something that looks almost exactly like what he says back in chapter 3. And let's see what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, again, Paul is going to use this idea that God's Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us in order to make a profound point about keeping ourselves holy. 
And when these original readers of this letter in Corinth, when they read this idea that I am, I am, we are as a church, we are God's temple, and God's temple is holy, so, so we must be holy. And when we read here in chapter 6, well, I stay away from these types of behaviors because it is God's spirit. In fact, he's asking me, don't I know that God's spirit even dwells within me, so how can I take something holy and join it to something that is unholy? Even those among them whose background was in paganism would have understood this idea that a temple is a place of special reverence. A temple is a place of sanctity. It is a place that is to be guarded for the sheer fact that it is set apart and it is supposed to represent the presence of God in a special way. Even the pagans would have recognized that. But for the Jewish people among them, I wonder for the Jewish folks that were reading this letter who had converted to Christianity, whose background was with the temple, was with the ark, was with all these ideas about the temple in which God's presence dwelled, I wonder what that kind of illustration might have meant for them. I wonder just how exactly that sort of metaphor might have changed the way they lived their lives. And honestly, I think that the application within this metaphor is very difficult for us to draw out now, considering just how different things are for us than they were for them. So what I want us to do tonight, after we've presented Paul's arguments here, I want to take a quick look at the significance of the temple in the Old Testament, and then to come back to 1 Corinthians and to make just a couple points of application, and then to issue a challenge to all of us tonight. But at least here at the beginning, I do want to make clear that I think that when we recognize that the church as a whole, and that we as individuals serve as a dwelling place for God's Spirit, I believe that it can give us a completely different kind of motivation for living the kind of life that we're supposed to live. I think it can completely change the way we view holy behavior versus unholy behavior. I think it can give us a new type of enthusiasm and excitement for what it means to be holy. But to do that, we need to back up to 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to turn over there. This is, for all practical purposes, really the beginning of the story of the temple as it housed the presence of God. The, the Ark of the Covenant has recently been recovered and brought back to Jerusalem. And David says to Nathan the prophet in the first few verses, you can look in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 7, look at what he says to Nathan. He says, look, now I live in a house of cedar, but the Ark of God dwells in a tent. And you find out that David is desiring to build a place for God, as we saw in the psalm a moment ago. David's desire is to build a place for God to live, and we learn a lot more about this place in 2 Chronicles 22, where I think David tells us why he wants to build this house. He says, the house of the Lord, the house that is to be built for the Lord, and this is in 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 5, the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all the lands. Now, apparently, it did not sit well with David that the house in which he lived seemed to exceed God's house as far as glory and honor and fame was concerned. And he said to Nathan, I want to build a place for God. And we find later that his motivation is to build an exceedingly magnificent place for God, not so people will look back and remember, oh, how great was David. Look at the great building that he built. Look at the great temple that he built. No, we find from Solomon in 1 Kings 18 and verse 8, or excuse me, in chapter 8 and verse 18, 
Actually, that God himself said to David, you have done well. You have done well to desire to build this house for me, but you're not going to be able to do it because there's too much blood on your hands. But someone will come after you and will build a house, and I'm going to dwell with my people forever. But for David, building this holy place for God, this magnificent place for God, was extremely high on this list of priorities. And I want to read our passage from Psalm 132 in a little bit fuller sense, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist here says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all of the hardships that he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give any sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I have found a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. You can fast forward to 1 Kings 8. This is the 11th year of Solomon's reign. And the temple is completed. Now, there's this great, for lack of a better term, dedication ceremony to the temple in which I think we can learn a lot of things, a lot of profound things about our own Christian lives from what it was this temple was meant to represent. We can get a lot of that from 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon, in verse 27, makes it very clear as he dedicates this temple to God that the temple of God is not the only place in which God dwells. Take a look in verse 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So God did not only dwell in the temple, but he did dwell in the temple in a very special way a unique kind of sense. It was something different than the general way in which his presence and his glory fills all of the earth. Let's look in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, this is right after they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies in the temple. In verse 10, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the presence of God is dwelling on this temple in a very special and unique way that was near and dear to the hearts of the Jewish people. And it was the simple fact that the presence of God dwelt in that temple in a special way that made the temple what it was. That idea of holiness that dwelt within the temple affected not just the grounds of the temple, but in fact the entire city of Jerusalem. The Jews held this place in a kind of regard with a level of respect and sanctity that I think is very hard for us to imagine. E.P. Sanders, who is a renowned Jewish historian, writes this about the temple. He says, it's difficult for us, and us being in a similar, those in a similar cultural context to everybody in here tonight. He says, it's difficult for us to imagine the feeling of sanctity that the temple inspired. It was an austere place dedicated to the worship of the creator of the world, the God of Israel. He was holy, which includes the idea of separation from what is common. Moses, when called by God, was told to take off his shoes and to come no further. This was no informal visit from a God who readily took human guise as the gods of Greek mythology. The ideas of holiness and separation, which allowed only what was most pure to come near, informed the entire arrangement of the temple and its rites. Even down to the way that the temple was, their architecture for the temple was meant to illustrate, in some ways, the holiness of God. There were courts, and I'm sure you know, the temple of God is not just one building. It's more of like a complex. 
So there are courts that the further you go into this temple complex, the holier and holier you must be to enter those courts, or the more ceremonially clean you had to be to enter into those courts. And inside of the inner court, you obviously have the building of the temple proper. And when you get in the temple, there's uh, the foyer, and then there's the long hallway that leads into this rectangular chamber that has some windows under the ceiling that are lighting the room. And in this chamber, there is a cubed structure. And it is within that structure that the Ark of the Covenant rests, and that's the term I know you're all familiar with, the Holy of Holies. This is the place where only the high priest, who is intended to be the most ceremonially clean of all of them, he can only enter once a year. The presence of God dwelt in this building in a special kind of way, or as Solomon says, his eyes were upon that temple in a special kind of way, breaching the purity laws surrounding the temple. This is how seriously they took the purity of that dwelling place of God. From Numbers chapter 18 and verse 3, if you breached these rules, according to the Jewish law, they had every right and the obligation of putting you to death for profaning the holy name of God. That same historian we mentioned a moment ago has another comment I think is very interesting. He says, even though the temple was heavily guarded, there was probably not much risk that an ordinary Jewish person would enter too deeply into the temple complex. Now, why they wouldn't do that is what's so interesting to me. Because they knew what was in the Bible and what laws governed the holiness of the temple. They respected its sanctity. Now, I say all of that to say this. The holiness and the reverence, the weight of the significance of God's presence dwelling in that building, which keep in mind, without that presence is just another building. The weight that the Jewish people attached to that dwelling place of the holy and magnificent God that they served must be kept in mind by his people today when we think about the place in which Paul says God dwells. When we understand the fact, this holiness and respect that we have so briefly seen in the temple, which we could illustrate much clearer if we had time tonight. When we consider the way that the Jews not only recognized, but guarded at every cost the holiness of God's dwelling place, I think it can change a lot of things about the way we view God's temple today as Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 3 and in chapter 6. So as we close tonight, I have just a few applications and one challenge to make. The first point I want to draw out seems almost too obvious to make, and it's the simple fact that God is here with us. Now, in a lot of ways, that's very comforting. If you would, turn with me over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 contains something that David obviously knew. It contains something that Solomon obviously knew. It contains something that perhaps though Jonah might not have known, or maybe he just didn't want to know. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall not lead, or your right hand shall hold me. There is a very real sense, folks, in which God is here with us tonight. The presence of God is with us, not just when we enter a building that says church on the outside a couple times a week. Paul says that the presence of God, and certainly not in the exact way down to the T of it as it dwelt in the temple, but now God's Spirit on earth dwells within us in a very unique sense. And so then, as the psalmist says here, there's really nowhere we can go to get out of the presence of God. So if we ask, when can we be with God, or when can we see God in our lives, the answer to that question is, every moment. God's presence is with us. And even when we try to escape it, the psalmist says, he is still there. And I think that changes the way that we think about why we should do the right thing when the moment comes. It is one thing entirely to say that I need to be doing the right thing because I, I just know that's the right thing to do and I want to be a good person. So I want to do the right thing. It is an entirely different question when protecting the holiness of God's name is at stake. And I wonder if we recognize ourselves truly as a dwelling place for God and if, my, if me as an individual and our church as a collective group, if we are meant to illustrate and represent the presence of God, and if it dwells within us, and if we are indeed, as Paul says in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, the body of Christ, representative to the rest of the world of this is what Jesus looks like, this is how Jesus behaves, this is what the glory of our God looks like, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, let others see your good works, not so that they can pat you on the back, not so that they can say how great is that church, how, is, how great is that individual, but so they might see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven, if the holiness of God's name is at stake with our behavior, I think it completely changes the way that we view why we need to do the things that are right. Certainly, there are good reasons to be obedient. There are good reasons to live in the right kind of ways. But then I think there are great reasons. And I think at least one of those great reasons we have to start thinking about the fact that protecting the sanctity and the holiness of God's name can largely be done through our own conduct as individuals and as a church. And it will help us to stop thinking in terms of there are only certain times when I'm in the presence of God. As we read from the psalm a moment ago, God does not walk past us. We do not walk past God. And let, let me explain what I mean. I don't know if you guys have seen the commercial from a while back where there's a few men uh, standing around, I think, in the gym, and they see uh, a lady walking by, and they're kind of slouched over like this, and they see the lady coming by, and they kind of, you know, they, they poke their chest out to kind of make it, you know, make themselves look a little more impressive as the lady walks by, and then as soon as they walk away, 
They just slouch back down again. And I think if we're not careful, sometimes this is how we treat the presence of God. We say, well, throughout the week, or when I'm at work, or uh, maybe I know for a lot of our, our teenagers and college kids, like on a weekend, on a Friday night, on a Saturday night, um, you know, that's when my shoulders are slumped. God's not necessarily with me there. Now, I know when I go to church Sunday morning, and I know when I'm with the youth group, or I know when I'm with the college group, or for all of us, I know when I'm with the church, like I, know, I know that i got to be buttoned up there because I know I'm in the presence of God there. And so what we do is we put our shoulders back, we put our chest out, and we try to look nice as we come into this building and walk right past God and then walk out those doors and leave him behind. And when we live that kind of way, when we think that God walks past us, what would we expect out of our conduct and behavior? Well, we would expect it to be a little bit erratic, wouldn't we? We would expect it to be when we're surrounded by people that we think we have to, when we're in the presence of God, we'll act one way, and then when we're out, we'll act another. It is a different thing entirely to recognize that God does not walk past us. We do not walk past us. We do not walk past God. Rather, God walks with us. And we are meant to walk with God. And such an observation removes the possibility of the thing that we call secret sin. We talk a lot about the secret sins that we might have, and certainly there are sins that we can keep secret from our parents, from our classmates, from our teachers, from our spouses from our children, from our elders, from everybody else. There are secrets that we can keep. There are secret sins that we can continue, but we cannot for one second, if we understand the fact, as Paul says, don't you know, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you? There's no such thing as any kind of secret sin that God does not already know about because he was with you when you did it. And when we confess to God and we ask for forgiveness, we don't need to kid ourselves into thinking, well, God doesn't know about this, and now I'm going to tell him about it. We are, in a sense of the word, we are absolutely a dwelling place for the Holy One of Israel. God is here. But also, God is holy. Both passages in 1 Corinthians refer to this holiness in some type of way. Obviously, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, he reminds them. He says, look, God's temple is a holy place, so you can't destroy it. And by the way, you are the temple of God. And over in chapter 6, he's trying to get them to stay away from unholy behavior. So again, he makes this point, hey, don't you know, remember, that you are a place in which the Spirit of God dwells, and that place is supposed to be kept holy if the Holy God is residing there in some kind of way. The the holiness of the temple was guarded because of the nature of the one who lived within. And I think that I truly believe that if we believe that God is here and that God is holy, what other reaction could we have than to try to guard that holiness of God with our own conduct? What other reaction could we possibly, what, what could we logically have other than to guard and protect the sanctity of God's holy name by our own behavior and by the nature of who we are and what we do and how we act with, interact with each other here 
in the church, I really honestly don't know what other response we could have other than to strive to live to protect the holiness of God's dwelling place. It is one thing to strive for holiness because we think we're supposed to be holy. It is another thing entirely to strive for holiness because God is holy. You know, I I think of the fullness of God's presence that we mentioned at the beginning of our time together tonight. The fullness of God's presence is obviously that eternal home with Him. But I also think about the fullness of God's absence. It has been said that the final condemnation, it has been said that hell is nothing more or less than the absence of God's presence. And I believe that it was C.S. Lewis that said, in the end, those people who are sent to condemnation are going to get exactly what they have longed for. And it sounds harsh, but he argues that there are people who go throughout their lives longing to be in the presence of God. And there are people who go through their lives longing to be out of the presence of God. And in the end, we're going to get what each of us is searching for. Those who are searching for the presence of God will gain it, and those who want who desire to be out of God's presence will receive their reward as well. And I wonder tonight if we recognize the weight of being in the presence of God. I want to close with a challenge that is drawn from two examples. And the first example we have already covered. In the scripture that we read at the outset of our time tonight, you see David's zeal for building a holy place for God. He says, I'm not going to go into my house. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to close my eyes until I am sure that I have secured a holy place for God to live. And as we read in Chronicles, it was a place that must be exceedingly magnificent. And I wonder what our own vows might look like. Are we willing to work as diligently as David? Now, David was not able to build the temple, but you can read in 1 Chronicles 22 that he took literally every step he could aside from beginning the building process himself. He didn't say, well, I can't build it. That's not a job for me. It's a job for one of my sons, so I'm going to lay back. He goes and he gets every resource needed. He makes all of the plans, and he sets it before Solomon and says, this is what you've got to do. Put your hands to the work and get it done. Now, in contrast to that, there's a group of Jewish exiles in Ezra chapter 5. This is a group that's been allowed to come back into Jerusalem by Cyrus. The temple, the place where God's presence is supposed to have dwelled among the Jews in a very special way, was destroyed. And it broke the hearts of the Jewish people, not because a building was knocked down, but because, symbolically speaking, the presence of their God, the eyes of their God upon them, have been turned to their punishment as they serve their time in exile. As they come back into the city, they build the foundation of the temple, and work stops. And in Ezra chapter 5, it says that Haggai and Zechariah stood up and began prophesying to the people. In Haggai chapter 1, the prophecy that he brings to the people, I think makes every application, every challenge that we need tonight. So Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And as we read this, 
Let's picture Haggai standing in front of the foundation of the temple that has been laid. It has not been rebuilt. There is a foundation laid. The city largely still lies in ruin. And as he stands in front of this temple, or what used to be the temple, that represents the presence of their God, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time hasn't come yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai and said, Is this a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and yet you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put him into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build this house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. David lamented the fact that his house looked more glorious than God's. And he devoted himself to building a magnificent place for God to dwell. The exile sat in their paneled houses while God's house sat in ruins. David vowed not even to enter his house until that dwelling place had been built. The exiles enjoyed the comfort of their homes and allowed God's holy dwelling place to sit in ruin. Haggai's words were meant to jolt the Israelites out of their complacency, out of their neglect for the holiness of God's holy dwelling place. And I wonder what all of us will do tonight. If we're lying in our paneled houses, allowing the holiness of God's dwelling place to slip into ruin, let's rise up and get to work and rebuild the holy place of God. And if we're here tonight working, genuinely working towards building a holy place for God, let's ensure that we protect the holiness of God by protecting the holiness of His dwelling place. Thus the Lord of hosts said through Haggai the prophet, Consider your ways.